Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I welcome back Pat TDS for our January 2024 visit. On the show, we discuss politics, history, international terrorism, and the 2024 election. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. What's going on, MC Squared? It's good to be back. You had just mentioned an Oxfam report. I had not read it, uh, but I think it commented on wealth or wealth inequality. We are in the new Gilded Age. In fact, I think we've surpassed uh, wealth inequality of the Gilded Age. And I think wealth inequality, I believe, is worse in America than any other industrialized country in the world. Although uh, England is uh, quickly on our coattails. So why don't you talk about the Oxfam study? Yeah, I mean, it really mentioned a number of uh, the countries in the kind of the colonizers like France, Germany, um, and the UK were mentioned as some of those richest nations along with the US. But the shocking part of it is that the richest 1% grabbed nearly two thirds of all new wealth uh, worth $42 trillion created since 2020, almost twice as much money as the bottom 99% of the world's population. And, you know, one of the other striking things was the fact that the top five earners or, or, or wealth holders in the world, uh, Elon Musk is one of those, uh, doubled their wealth, right? At the same time that the 50 percent of the poorest in the world became much poorer, right? So we're just seeing the concentration of wealth um, really getting, uh, you know, just so much worse, exponentially worse. Like, you you know, we talked about offline before we, we jumped on the recording together was, you know, the idea that this is the worst it's been in history. And it is because of the astronomical scale and political control uh, kind of at, on a worldwide stage at this at this point uh, that those five folks have, those five, you know, white men have. I'm continuing to go down a... Um wormhole and research for my solo pod on the banking system. I figured I would do a couple hours of research. I must be in hour 15 or something of my research. So I only have so much time working a full-time job, trying to maintain a house and whatnot. So, and I do, you know, podcasts two, three, sometimes four nights a week. So I wish I had a little bit more time for my research and and that sort of stuff, but uh, I do what I can. Um, but, you know, what I found out is just the, the crooked nature of the entire banking system. Um, and it was a lot of the, 
I think it was a lot of the drive um, and what maybe caused the American Revolution to kind of get out of the European-controlled banking system, the predatory banking system. Uh, it's not much has changed, uh, you know, since that uh, system has been instituted. Uh, the bank, there's been a couple um, Federal Reserves or whatever U.S. national banks. Uh, they've been. Um, you know, ended, you know, one, once by uh, Andrew Jackson, who did a lot of horrible things to the indigenous here. But that's one positive I see from his presidency is he killed the bank. He even said on his, uh, I think, later in life, maybe near the time he was about to die, it's like, what's your proudest achievement? He's like, I killed the banks. So I think that's a good thing that he did. Uh, the bank wars, I'm kind of getting into um, how the Europeans actually wanted to fund um, the South. They were trying to divide and conquer the United States. Mm -hmm. Lincoln actually issued debt-free currency, the greenbacks. That's how the money gets its nickname. Um, and uh, but what the Europeans wanted to do is kind of you know destabilize the United States, um, divide and conquer, um, funding the South, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, they won out. The the uh, the robber barons or the money changers, um, you know, eventually controlled the U.S. Um, you know, the whole, the whole continent, essentially, I mean, now, you know, the banking system mostly, you know, flows to the West, uh, banks in London, um, Brussels, New York, uh, and with things like the International Monetary Fund, you know, predatory capitalism, we control the whole world. That's kind of what the idea behind neocolonialism is. So, uh, but, you know, kind of back to your point about how much money was created. I mean, what, 41 trillion or something like that, or some insane amount, um, well, yeah, that's the that's just the amount created by or for those Taking five, the, uh, yeah, by the rich, the top but rich, yeah. It's just wild. Amount of money. I don't, I don't even, I can't even quantify or you know put it put any sense to it in my head. And one reason for this insane, you know, uh, amount of capital, which is controlled by the you know the one percent or actually the fraction, fraction of one percent, like you said, a handful of people. We have so much money out there, but they hoard it and they control it. So what we get is insane inflation and a cost of living crisis. Although you know they're they're saving it and they're they're hoarding it, and um, you know with the with you know I guess the. Um, what it, what it turns out to be is Nixon taking us off the gold standard, dismantling the Bretton Woods system, uh, which was accelerated by Reagan and Thatcher. We're in an era where, you know, all uh, financial, um, you know, metrics are just out of whack. The stock market's out of whack. I mean, there used to be, um, you know, a certain P.E. ratio, you know, price to earnings, which would be legitimate for, um, you know, owning a stock. But now it's just it's just nuts. Hundreds of times earnings. So the the the, the wealth and the value of these companies, it's just kind of on paper. It's kind of paper created wealth. And, uh, you know, it, it booms, you know, when, when times are good and when the economy crashes, people lose their houses. You know, of course, the, the rich and powerful, you know, they're able to make money in a good economy, in a recession, in a depression, and in times of booms. Um, but, yeah, you know, they win either way. Yeah. yeah. I saw a good stat um, or a, a good uh, quip that was like, uh, you know, usually when the stock market goes up, we get nothing, you know. Uh, and when it goes down, we all lose our jobs. But during COVID, uh, the stock market went up and we still lost our jobs. So, and we still yeah. got nothing, but, uh, yeah, the stock market, it's basically a barometer of how rich people are feeling. Uh, it has almost no, um, you know, has almost no, um, 
correlation, you know, with the productive economy, with working people. Uh, for most people, the the, uh, the stock market is a spectator sport, you know, and, and we're kind of just watching the numbers go up and down. But, you know, our pocketbooks don't change much. Maybe, you know, with uh, with uh, pension funds and 401ks and whatnot, there's a little bit of uh, a redistribution of wealth. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would much rather, um, you know, have something like Social Security that you live off of. I, I think we were talking about uh, with another podcast or social security, uh, maybe around a thousand bucks a month. It just kind of depends where, where can you live off of a thousand bucks a month? You know, where can you get a mortgage, a car payment, a cell phone, internet, uh, TV, if you're watching that, uh, you know, or, uh, groceries. So, uh, but you know, and then pension funds too, at one, at one point in time, you know, you work for maybe 25, 30 years and, uh, at the end you get a pension fund and it's, it's stable. Um, you have an idea of what you're going to make. Maybe it's, the same amount you made, you know, when you were working or maybe just slightly less, but now, you know, a lot of the, a lot of our, um, you know, our, our wealth is tied up in the stock market and when it goes up, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe pennies on the dollar, we might, might notice it a little bit, but not much, but when it goes down, I mean, it's, it's can be challenging. And now we're seeing people, um, you know, with, with the, with the stock market and, uh, with the cost of living crisis and, Maybe recession. I think it was um, maybe put off for a couple more years. Keep the can down the road with some of the bailouts and the pension, or I'm sorry, sorry with some of the COVID money that was floating around there. But uh, yeah, inflation is insane, uh, and we're seeing uh, people working like later and later in life. It's now very common to see people in their what 60s, 70s, 80s. I saw a story someone working into their late 90s. Like that's a good thing. That's a terrible thing. Why would we? Why would? Why would anyone? want that they should be able to spend your golden years enjoying your family and friends and maybe retiring with dignity you know yeah absolutely i mean i think that you touched on a lot of things there and i think one of the key parts of the the reason that the u.s has hegemonic control over the world economy is because of the dollarization of the economy which is part of you know that mix that you were going through there in terms of nixon and Reagan and, and the petrodollars and all those things. But what I think, it, you know, we're approaching is as opposed to the, the typical boom and bust cycle, um, I think we're looking at something more like a, a multipolar world. And what that would look like, you know, economically is that you might have like a brick nation. Lula da Silva has been talking about this for a while and he still wants to uh, get it going is that, you know, the president of Brazil have uh, a BRICS currency, right? A currency that is, that is a kind of a, uh, an alternative to the U.S. system, which is always tied into U.S. sanctions and all these policies that the global South is is pretty much done with, right? And so this report shows that so so few people, uh, and I'm not recalling the percentage right now, but it's like 14% of the world population lives in what we consider the global North. You know, those Western European countries and, and the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand um, but the rest of that population, you know, uh, lives in the global South and they are, I think, getting tired of our pushing our policy and pushing our, our dollar, um, you know, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a lever, but even as like a hammer when we want to, you know, smash something down or, uh, as a way of wrecking up economies in the case of, uh, you know, Venezuela and our blockade on Cuba, which is, you know, inhumane and, uh, has been stated as such illegal. as like illegal in the international world. So it's like, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's going to be striking to see if there's a, a multipolar world created 
And I think having China be in a position of uh, economic power and economic growth, I mean, this report shows that, you know, 70% of the growth um, that happened, like the anti-poverty measures that took place where, you know, poverty reduction actually happened in the, in the last 40 years happened in China because of the efforts of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, which I have my quibbles with as a socialist. Like, I'm not going to hold it out as anything near perfection, but that's what happens when a government decides that poverty is not acceptable and that, like, they're going to just go hard at poverty um, and they discipline their companies. And that's just like what this report shows is that the U.S. doesn't. Right. It shows that Elon Musk pays a real tax rate on his earnings uh, and his holdings of three percent. Just like insane, right? Every one of us Americans who pay taxes pay way more than that. So actually, I tweeted this out the other day. In 41 states, billionaires pay a lower tax rate than everyone else. So it's really unfair. The vast majority of the um, American electorate of American citizens want um, you know, billionaires and the rich to pay their fair share, to pay more in taxes, but it continues to go down um, no matter what uh, because we don't live in a functioning democracy. Um, it is uh, basically you know, a tiny fraction of the percent of the population, maybe the top 10% or so, um, you know, their, their, uh, opinions are factored into policies, you know, and policy decisions made in Washington while the, um, the bottom 90% of us, probably you and I included are disenfranchised essentially. So it doesn't really matter much what we think and the economy, it's not for us. You know, Joe Biden doesn't work for us. He even said so on the campaign trail, he's working for the rich and powerful. Um, you know, there's a little bit of pushback with the democratic party. I saw they they, they tried to uh, increase the tax rate, the highest tax rate by something like 2.7%, which is even in, is not even covering inflation. But it's something. It's better than nothing. Uh, and, of course, the right, the Republican Party, uh, the party of no, you know, they won't even allow uh, Biden to push through such a minuscule measure, you know, out of principle. So, um, you know, whatever the whatever the Democrats do, it's not enough. You know, it's, it's certainly um, better than nothing. But uh, the Republicans, they're going to fight. Um, for, for against all measures, you know, to increase the uh, the burden on the rich and powerful, you know, essentially they want to uh, eliminate their tax burden, and that's the, the crazy part is there's all this nonsense about shutting down the government again, uh, and it'd be so easy to solve this to solve this uh, financial so quote unquote crisis or whatever you want to call it. It's a bunch of nonsense. But let's uh, why don't we why don't we cut down the uh, the bloated military budget. Why don't we raise taxes on the rich? Okay, solved. Let's move on to the next issue. You know, it's complete. It's completely ludicrous. This government shutdown nonsense. And of course, countries around the world are laughing at us as, as we kind of can't get our shit together in Washington. I think we touched on this in the last episode uh, of 2023. But uh, you know, this 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 government shutdown nonsense. You know, what every six or eight months there. That's the Republicans play. Uh, and of course, if they ever get power, which is um, always their goal, you know, they'll, they'll try to do the best they can to make sure, you know, the government runs smoothly. But if there's a Democrat in power, regardless of what happens to working people or federal workers or, you know, everyone, <laughs> they, they're going to just try to make um, the, co- the country ungovernable. And they'll, they'll completely, um, you know, try to use their political power to prevent any sort of um, rational 
uh, legislation to go through, no matter how you know modest it might be. And of course, <laughs> Biden and his administration isn't doing much. I mean, Chomsky had mentioned uh, you know Biden's foreign policy when compared to to Trump's is uh, indistinguishable. Um, but uh, you know, Chomsky you know hasn't been saying much. I don't know if he's um, well. Uh, health wise, but uh, he hasn't been in the public eye now for a few months. So I hope he's doing okay. But uh, he did think that uh, the Biden administration was doing some good things, uh, at least domestically. So I have questions about that, but he seems to think so. And he's more of an expert on U.S. policy than I am. So I'll defer and say that, yeah, maybe Biden administration is trying to do some things, but it's not enough. But unfortunately, you know, the Republican Party won't even let him get the most uh, minute thing uh, passed in his agenda just to make him look bad, you know. Well, I mean, the one thing on domestic policy that I continue to point out because I think it's really relevant is what he, what has happened to the Department of Labor since, uh, you know, like like standing up for unions and such. And that because um, Trump had Scalia's son in, in that position and he was anti-union. He had been a union buster his entire career as a lawyer and was actively trying to dismantle and completely, you know, defanging. Uh, OSHA and all of the job protections and all of the protections for unions like the NLRB. So just putting Marty Walsh, who was the former mayor here in Boston, uh, who was brought up as a union guy, um, you know, having him in that place where he was actually standing up for workers who were trying to unionize or workers who were bringing it, you know, a a case or whatever against their employer. Like there, there was finally a you know, a real Department of Labor getting back to work on that stuff. So, like, there are some, you know, modest gains that we can claim uh, on yeah. the domestic front. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's frustrating to see how much, like you said, Biden works for someone else. Like, he doesn't work, work for us and he doesn't care what we think. No. And there's nothing, there's nothing more evident than that, you know, in the, the fact that he didn't care about this Israel and Gaza thing and, and just didn't really have any concept of how it was going to affect his chances, especially in like the Midwest with like Michigan, the Minneapolis, you know. So uh, someone came so, out and said this. Uh, there's a big um, Arab population in, in Michigan. I forget yeah. who said this, but they said that uh, Biden's inaction, you know, or I guess essentially his implicit um, in, in, you know, in, in his aid of Israel in there. Uh, continued effort to carry out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes might lose him uh, Michigan, which is a very important state uh, and, uh, you know, could tip the balance of the election. I think it was really close last election, and Trump is looks to be unstoppable. Looks like he's going to easily win the Republican nomination, and I think he's going to win the presidency, uh, and it's not going to be a good thing. I wish, um, you know, I wish both, you know, Biden and, and Trump would be, uh, you know, removed from the ballot. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I really don't think Biden is too much better, and I'm really not going to argue the side of Biden. But it does seem to me that, uh, you know, Biden's maybe a little bit better. He has some, uh, you know, he, you know, we certainly can't push him very far left, but there's some things that he's open to, uh, you know, maybe not ending the, the, the genocide in Gaza, but, uh, you know, at least he tried you know, not very hard, but try to do some student loan forgiveness. Um, he had mentioned, at least on the campaign trail, about uh, more affordable college. So, I mean, at least rhetorically, he's talking about some things that might actually benefit, you know, the 99% of us. Uh, I don't know about Trump, but uh, he really doesn't say much um, other than just kind of just nonsense and, you know, just kind of just spewing out. 
um, BS. But uh, I, I don't know. What, what about all this stuff about the um, removing Trump from the ballots? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, is first that a good I, thing? I is that a bad thing? Is there some is there some merit to it? Is there some smoke where there's fire, or do you think it's just a political stunt? I want to just go back a second and talk about that Trump and Biden matchup and the fact that like. I was telling people and my wife and my wife and I were both telling people all throughout that uh, campaign that like you have to go with someone like Bernie or even Elizabeth Warren because you can't fight fascism with like centrist policy. Right. It never works out well. You have to fight fascism with left policy. You have to like take the worker side and give them a reason to have your back in the fight against fascism. It just doesn't work to try to like both sides it right or to try to centrist your way out of that kind of trouble and so this is just like the predictable outcome of of uh trump firing back on all cylinders with you know his pot shots which he does so well like we saw he couldn't govern you know and he he was atrocious in so many ways he has mass but, popular but, appeal though that's that's the issue that but democrats he, do not yeah. democrats right. don't have and mass had, popular appeal and trump does and unfortunately Unless the Democrats do something to help out working people and the 99% of us, they're going to lose this election. They might lose it badly. Well, and he had a TV show in the U.S. for, you know, where he was made to look like this hero and this business genius. And that's all you need with the American public to get into their consciousness of enough people to as this, like, you know, business mastermind. When in reality, we know that's not true. But, you know, it is it's concerning and it shows the limits of our two party system and it shows the limits of a system that's, you know, that basically allows corruption. You know, it's just it's unfortunate, but it's also scary at the same time, because like, yeah, you can have middling Biden who's like kind of like co-signing genocide and giving political cover to Israel as they commit genocide. Um, or you can have Trump who like is down with, uh, you know, make, you know, allowing abortion to be legal and down with like being really brutal to migrants who are just coming to the U.S. because of U.S. foreign policy. You know, like just because of our approach in the world, people are fleeing to try to get somewhere stable enough that they can raise their family. And we're allowing just the most horrific things to happen along that border. Why don't we, yeah, why don't we talk about this? Cause we, on the pre-call we had mentioned, uh, maybe two weeks ago, we kind of got a hang up last week, but, uh, we were able to reconnect. So on our call though, maybe two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, the quote unquote, uh, the crisis at the border, the immigration crisis, um, which I think is a crisis created by decades of destabilization and basically destroying the economies of Mexico, Central America, South America, NAFTA. Uh, we talk about um, you know Reagan's terror wars. He was sanctioned uh, by the International Court for International Terrorism. Uh, the criminal court, I don't believe any other country or president has ever been sanctioned uh, that directly. Um, you know, immigrants are, sorry, uh, but, you know, Reagan was one of the worst criminals of all time. And uh, he was actually the, uh, I think he might have coined uh, uh, law and justice, you know, that sort of thing, that kind of nonsense. Law and order, yeah. yeah I, that started, order, with, right, yeah. started with Nixon, but Reagan definitely okay. ran with it, too. Yeah. Let's talk about it, yeah. though. Let's talk about, no. so you had some thoughts on the quote-unquote immigration crisis, the crisis at the border. Um, you know, what do you think is going on there? I think it's a little more than a political stunt, this nonsense about the put up the wall and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the 
I, I live down here, so and I don't see any danger. I, my friends, my family, you know, I think these people are looking for a better life, looking for a job, looking to get here as local refugees or, you know, try to get to safety. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff going on with the cartel and the, the war on drugs, which is, again, the problem here is in America. The demand for drugs is here. You know, the cartel is only there for um, trying to satisfy a demand, you know, and if we're going to have this farcical war on drugs in this black market, there's always going to be organizations out there trying to make a buck, you know. So, And part of the thing about the war on drugs is, you know, and I had mentioned this on tweets before um, and podcasts before, but the part of the war on drugs is, you know, you need a, to, to have um, clandestine operations, you know, to kind of overthrow governments abroad, and many of which uh, uh, in South America, um, the CIA, you know, overthrowing a slightly leftist or a slightly left-leaning regime and replacing it with some sort of puppet regime, you know, kind of what the, like they did in Chile um, with Pinochet and whatnot. But they've repeated this, you know, over and over again, including in the Ukraine. But one way to, you know, kind of account for large sums of uh, money, untraceable money, dark money, to overthrow governments and to perform, you know, clandestine operations and acts of international terrorism for political gain, you need dark money, untraceable money. And what better way to get that is the drug war. So a lot of times, you know, the CIA and these government agencies, um, they, they work together, you know, they work together to flood, um, like they did in the nineties, cocaine, uh, on the streets of, uh, LA and throughout the country, um, which ended up, uh, you know, leading to the crack epidemic. And then, um, you know, they were able to use that money to buy weapons and, and, you know, arms distributions for, um, I think it was the uh, the Contras. I think, forget what country we were talking about. I think it was it was it Guatemala? Was it the Guatemala? But uh, that was no, that was Nicaragua. Nicaragua. That's right. The yeah. Contras down there, and they used that uh, drug money to help them overthrow the government and install a puppet regime. All the while creating a uh, all the while creating a a, uh, a drug crisis, destroying you know communities and lives of people and families. And uh, but you know that's kind of the story, and uh, you know the destabilization of. Um, Latin America, um, what we might call stabilization, what Chomsky is called. So when we typically say, you know, stabilizing a region, what we say, what we mean is, you know, policies that support U.S. power interests. You know, when we talk about yeah, making it making it safe and favorable for U.S. business interests. And that's what, you know, started in Guatemala in 1954. Uh, the creation of the country of Honduras was for the United Fruit Company, which you know ultimately became Dole. But it was just a, like one rich guy who wanted to start his own country and basically said to the U.S., "Like, look, I'll I'll make sure that it stays." Basically, dictatorships are what feel most stable to U.S. business interests, and so that's what we install. And it's you know, it, it, like you said, the, the the border crisis or the you know the influx of people from Latin America. But from around the world too is is as a result of U.S. foreign policy and, and U.S. economic policies. So it's not just you know the war on drugs is definitely a great example. It's also just making sure it's safe and stable for U.S. business interests. And it's also you know things like NAFTA, you know our, our free trade agreements, um, you know, and our prison culture also they're, was exported. They're called, they're called free trade agreements though, but uh, as right. I must point out here, they're investor rights agreements. They're essentially giving investors. Um, power, um, you know, protection by governments uh, blocking Mexico and other nations into these 
um, trade agreements, not allowing them to get out of them, and providing you know U.S.-based corporations, Mexican-based corporations, providing them legal protections, uh, you know, la- relaxing environmental standards, labor laws, <laughs> um, uh, you know, labor safety um, regulations, maybe descaling back some of these. Um, regulatory bodies keeping workers safe so nafta is a terrible thing it's destroyed the mexican economy um you know it, it's hurt american workers because now there's the threat of job transfer overseas into mexico uh, and essentially what um you know neoliberalism does is put workers of the global south in competitions with workers in the rich industrial countries and that uh, in turn actually keeps wages down for everyone involved so it's a twisted system that keeps wages down for not just workers um in the global south, but here too, because there's the, always the threat that hey, and I've I've, I've seen billionaires and, and you know the rich and powerful, um, you know the elites here. I've seen them threaten it like hey, if if you're if you're going to demand these high wages, we're just going to send this job to you know Mexico or Argentina or um, you know a- anywhere where um, you know workers are making a fraction of what they might. S- uh, make here um, and what and what the business press calls the uh, hampered Western workers. You know, there's always just the threat of job transfer can uh, can crush a um, you know can crush a unionization uh, takeover organizing effort there. Uh, and you know, saying hey, you know, we, enough of this union stuff. We want to keep our jobs. You know, we'll 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 just settle. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I do think it's important to sh- to see that there's a movement back to the left among Latin American countries and a smarter way of going about it to try to make sure that they create networks within, you know, between each other um, so that when they do suffer blockades or sanctions, they can withstand them better. Um, just most recently, Guatemala uh, was elected and then after a month of fighting from the uh, from the rich elite of the country, uh, the ruling class, uh, Bernardo Arevalo was just uh, sworn in. So he's now a leftist president in Guatemala. Um, you know, and, and the cases, you can find the cases across, like even Mexico has AMLO, um, who is, you know, quite leftist and, you know, not not up to par for every indigenous group, uh, especially in southern Mexico, but still f- so far left and so kind of wary and and savvy about how he treats the U.S., um, you know, and that's happening throughout Latin America now. And that's that's uh, kind of exciting to see because it's at a point now where I think it's gotten too much. It's become too much of a spread for for the way the U.S. has, you know, typically handled these situations. And I think because of the Internet age and the way that we can kind of capture and, you know, anything and broadcast it from our phones has made it harder to conduct some of the operations, um, like the training of, of, you know, paramilitary forces that would empower dictators at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. You know, that, that school has been shut down. Um, you know, not to say that that stuff isn't happening, but to say that it's like, it's harder for them to, to operate um, kind of so boldly as they had in the past. I, was, I, had a, I can't remember. I mean, I've had so many podcasts over the last six or eight months, but talking about the cop city and the, and the giant one in um, Atlanta, but I've been told and read on some stuff that they're doing these cop cities all over the country. I think uh, mm-hmm. one in Baltimore where I was living up to a few years ago, uh, but everywhere, you know, these are training grounds, um, for essentially militarization of the police, the, the domestic terror force, you know, and I guess there's um, a lot of um, 
you know, interaction between the IDF and Israel and their trainer, trained killers and uh, U.S. police forces. So, um, and then one thing that Israel is also, um, not only is it uh, a military outpost, uh, allowing the United States to control um, the world's oil supplies in an oil-based economy, but it also provides a uh, the grounds for testing new technologies, weapons, and whatnot on live targets, the Palestinians, who mm-hmm. you know have no rights. You know they're essentially being exterminated, ethnically cleansed, and uh, the world uh, is sitting back and watching what happen is happening and doing absolutely nothing about it. Uh, and, and like surve- surveillance technology as well, like they're you know. People don't quite realize how how closely surveilled and drone, you know, uh, camera operated all over Gaza all the time, all over the West Bank all the time. So, like this kind of surveillance technology, just like you said about weapons and ammunition, is tested, you know, by Israeli even Israeli companies are developing it as well. But yeah, good point. Just continue with what you had though. Well, and it also doesn't take much time. So. First technology starts as surveillance, but it usually doesn't take much time for that to become violent. You know, so if you want to go back to the Obama drone wars, you know, first we had these drones for surveillance, but it didn't take long for these drones to carry out assassinations in a Mm -hmm. global assassination campaign, which was obviously completely illegal. Yet, uh, you know, Obama's supposed to be this constitutional scholar and this, you know, progressive um, and somehow, you know, carrying out this drone assassination campaign, which is illegal to international law, you have to bring, you know, people, um, you have to charge them and bring them to an international court. You can't just assassinate your political enemies. Um, but uh, instead of, um, you know, Obama being, you know, tied up with, um, you know, charges in criminal court, he won a Nobel Peace Prize. Incredible. Well, that was before he even did anything at all, before he really took office, but which was okay. kind of funny, funny and like, yeah, just, you know, denigrating to the to other Nobel Prize winners because it's yeah. not an accomplishment. I mean, it was an accomplishment to get elected. OK, let me go back to the uh, the trafficking, uh, I guess, incident in the uh, late 1980s. Uh, this was uncovered by Gary Webb. He exposed how the CIA hired drug traffickers to sell crack cocaine in the U.S. uh, and uh, more specifically Los Angeles in order to um, in order to traffic money to a terrorist organization to the Nicaraguan Contras who were trying to overthrow the government of Nicaragua um, and massive shipments of cocaine and causing the crack epidemic and uh, weapons transfers to uh, the Nicaraguan Contras trying to install a puppet regime that would be, uh, you know, friendly to U.S. power interests, uh, the Reagan clandestine terror campaign. Uh, And later on, um, after this expose in the San Jose Mercury News, Gary Webb was found uh, dead with two bullet holes in his head, and that was ruled a suicide. So, anyways... Uh, but you had a book recommendation. I actually got it in the mail today. You got a lot of good book recommendations. Um, so let's see. What, what was that book recommendation that you sent me? I think it's In Search Tim of Hicks. Enemies, the CIA. Oh, In Search of Enemies is super yeah. interesting. But, John Stockwell? Um, also, yeah, Stockwell. Um, but the other one that is really good that I would recommend to listeners um, is Overthrow by Stephen Kinzinger. And that's just a chronicling case-by-case of you know CIA actions in in the interest of U.S. business and at the expense of leftist democratically elected leftist you know governments throughout Latin America. It's really well um, explained. 
and well researched and um, it's just it's a it's a really good kind of backgrounder for anyone who wants to fully understand you know what our government has done uh, in the name of capitalism and also you know for me as a leftist it, it really refutes the idea that that every you know left government has failed right the idea that like they've just kind of failed right is if if there were such failures you know why would we be working so very hard to stop them and to to reverse them and to to push you know uh authoritarians into power in order to quell or quash leftist movements it's it's like you know it's kind of silly to make this claim that like you know uh socialist governments fail time after time when we see they lift people from poverty and then often they're kneecapped you know by as we mentioned at the start of the episode a, a global hegemonic force uh, in the U.S. and the, the, its ability to pull levers in the world economy to really sink a regime pretty fast uh, because of that ability to to disempower them economically yeah, or directly you know, outright, force, but, yeah, uh, or outright blockade them, which is right. uh, you know just so economic so tra- terrorism. Tragic. I yeah, call it exactly. economic terrorism. You know, um, but yeah, either outright force and direct international mm-hmm. terrorism, or economic terrorism, or you know, kind of neo-colonial. Um, you know, very stringent loans with, uh, you know, very parasitic, um, very high interest rates uh, that flow back to Western banks. You know, the IMF is a, uh, you know, kind of a neo-colonial institution that uh, handicaps the global south with these just predatory loans. And it's, you know, basically the scheme of uh, predatory capitalism. And I, I do want to get back to the greenbacks and interest-free um, money. I think it's an awesome idea, like a, a decentralized bank um, with currency that is um, you know, debt-free. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I'm reading a book, um, I actually read several of his books, Thomas Pinkety, but he had said, like, this system is just, it's just absurd. It is insane. Uh, you know, I think the banking system is the cause of so many problems, you know, in the world. And uh, he talked about, again, like trillions and trillions of dollars created since the 2020. How much of that is going into the pockets of working people? Not much, you know, a tiny fraction. It's being hoarded by a fraction of the 1%. Um, But I love the idea of getting rid of these predatory um, banks, these financial institutions um, carrying out neocolonialism and predatory capitalism. I love the idea of decentralized banks, getting rid of the Federal Reserve, getting rid of the IMF, and a system of debt-free currency. And Thomas Piketty actually advocated for, uh, and I love it because he's a solutions-based economist. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a left leftist. Uh, I would say he's probably a socialist, a socialist economist. I know, you know, socialism, that's a that's a boo word in uh, capitalist circles, but uh, I think it's just, you know, confused, unfortunately, with just basic human rights. But he had advocated for, um, you know, progressive tax rates. I had also mentioned earlier in the episode, out of the, out of the 50 states, 41 states, uh, their tax code is uh, the richest, you know, 1% pay less than everybody else. How does that make any mm-hmm. sense? The the population right. is, wants the billionaires and the wants the rich and, you know, wants the wealthy to pay more. But unfortunately, you know, no matter what they think, taxes continue to go down. I think they're they're at or near the lowest level with the tax, the Trump tax cuts, which again, mm-hmm. Biden didn't do much to stop. 
Um, but he also advocates for just kind of like debt conferences where countries get together and say, hey, you know, you owe us $20 billion. We owe you $18 billion. Let's just throw out it, you know, and let's just call it even, that sort of thing. So these like debt conferences where, you know, we kind of get together. Unfortunately, what happens is, you know, the rich countries, we hold these poor, you know, countries of the global south responsible in like Greece, for example, and that, um, you know, financial crisis that they had, we destroyed their economy, you know, inflation and just destroyed the working class. And, you know, it was a very imposed austerity measures. Yes. Yes, The austerity measures that really choke an economy because you just don't have the the spending going on within your economy to to kind of give it the gas that it would need within this system. Um, Yeah, it's it's really it's predatory and it is uh, it, it hamstrings any type of government that wants to impose any type of social spending, you know, to try to improve their their infrastructure, whatever it may be, education system, healthcare system. It becomes much harder once you're under the thumb of, of a loan like that, you know, from the World Bank. Yeah, big chunk uh, just goes to interest. It just goes directly to these yeah. financial institutions who do absolutely nothing, you know, to stimulate or do no good to the real economy. If anything, they harm the real economy. So they're just making interest off the top. Um, and, and, and countries have to kind of keep printing more and more and more money right. just to pay off the interest from the from the last, uh, you know, loan that we took out. So um, I, I definitely th- think, though, having done this deep dive, um, part of the revolution was to try to get out of that uh, European colonialism, that economic system do- dominated by, mm-hmm. you know, European elites. And once they started a federal bank here, um, you know, it was modeled completely after the Bank of England, which is which is what, you know, the founding fathers, they're so-called, uh, you know, what they wanted to get a- away from. Mm-hmm. And what it turns out is actually um, the, the, the central banks here, most of the, their private companies are still private companies. U.S. Federal Reserve is uh, deceptively named. And at the, at the mm-hmm. time of its founding, I, I still don't think uh, the details are uh, out about, um, you know, who invested in it. A lot of them were rumored to be, um, what's that banking family from Germany, the Rothschilds, you know, and the majority of the owners of the, of the U.S. Federal Reserve were European elites. And uh, I guess it was something like, uh, I want to say like $10 million to start this uh, Federal Reserve. I mean, there's been a couple of them again. They've been killed a couple times. The people fought back. Uh, right now, it's very, very powerful. These banks are too big to fail, and they're bigger than ever. And, uh, you know, it's kind of built into the bailouts, you know, when, when the banks fail, you know, they could take us all under or we could just bail them out, you know, and then the same people mm-hmm. that destroyed the economy are in powerful and in control of more money than ever. But uh, what happened was they needed like 10 million, I think, something along those lines to start this bank. Uh, and what happened was the, the federal government gave them 2 million. And thanks to uh, fractional reserve lending, uh, they were able to loan money to themselves at no risk whatsoever. So the only the only um, money that was put up was by the taxpayers and uh, you know the people that uh, were quote unquote investors uh, had a risk free loan because they just loaned it to themselves and once that was paid off they could just collect the interest. So a very mm-hmm. very uh, deceptive scheme uh, that I think you know a lot of the issues. I'm, I, I'm in opposition of corporations for sure and certainly against private ownership of you know corporations. Uh, you know, the, the Federal Reserve essentially uh, loaning, you know, money to uh, the federal government, you know, at, at interest. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, we're just kind of just this continuous endless cycle. Uh, and I think it's why, um, 
you know, we're in this cost of living crisis and inflation is out of control. And, uh, you know, more and more and more money is just hoarded by these rich and powerful people. That means nothing to them. You know, $21 trillion, $17 trillion, $5 trillion. I mean, is there, at that point, with so much money, do you even notice a difference? I mean, it's more money than you can spend in several generations and several lifetimes. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and your your mention of the, the way that the Federal Reserve was created, you know, it brings to mind for me, you, know, you wanted to mention, you mentioned in the pre-call, wanted to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, I, you know, his quote just stands out as such a great summary of that system that you talked about being created and the idea of socialism for the rich, socialism for corporations, and rugged individualism for the rest of us, right? And so we're, we're all meant to think that it's this like doggy dog world and it's all about who does the you know who works the hardest and is is the cleverest somehow makes it to the top and it's not a meritocracy like that it's, it is in fact like you know uh, a certain person's game and and you're just those people are just playing it um and we're not really we're, we're not really involved you know and uh I just think people like Martin Luther King Jr. have done such a good job calling it out and bringing attention to it and pushing back against it and, and kind of raising people power to the problem. Yeah, I think he mentioned too, uh, you know, the question he started to talk about the economic system. A lot of people um, were in favor of him calling out, you know, racist sheriffs in Alabama. But once he started to attack the economic system, you know, people in power really started to take notice. So when he said something like, you know, why are there 30 million poor people in this country? And, uh, you know, you always have to remember that he was killed, uh, you know, trying to organize a sanitation workers strike in Memphis. So that's when he was taken out. So, um, you know, I think, I think he was, uh, did, did a lot of great things um, for, you know, the, 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 the civil rights movement and, um, you know, equal rights for minorities and blacks and that sort of thing. But you have to have to remember, also have to remember that he was also pushing for the working class, you know, working people um, that were struggling. And I think that's when he really got on the radar of the rich and powerful. And I think that's when they, um, you know, really wanted to stop him, you know, because it's one thing to address racism. I think the majority of the population, um, you know, realize that outright racism is bad, um, but the economic system, that's something you can't touch here in this country. And um, so, yeah, I think his, I think some of the stuff he, he's done, I think he's a model for peaceful um, protests. I think he's, um, you know, and I think he'd probably be the first to say that, you know, he was, you know, there, there are more people in this movement than him. You know, he was just, you know, kind of uh, a leader that, you know, he would come and do speeches and got a lot of notoriety. But uh, I think, you know, throughout history, the most important people, the people that really struggle are the you know, the names of their names are never, you know, written in history books. So, um, you know, that's, I think what it takes, I think, um, you know, coming together, solidarity, organizing people with the same goals as you do and, and, uh, trying to change things because uh, alone you can do nothing, but, uh, together we can really make an impact. And, uh, you know, when we finally come together and, and organize and protest, uh, you know, people like Martin Luther King and, you know, other, uh, Eugene Debs, you know, other leaders throughout history, they can kind of get that front page publicity, but the hard work is, uh, you know, done by, you know, people that will probably never know their names and that sort of thing. No, and, you know, I, I've taught about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quite a bit as a history teacher, um, and I've read a lot about him, and I have, uh, you know, was recently, you know, I've been hosting a little neighborhood Martin Luther King Jr. party to just do a little teaching, 
to the kids and my own kids. And as I was preparing for this, I was watching the I Have a Dream speech with my kids and watching old you know, news footage of it. And one of the things that struck me was that a lot of people were wearing hats or pins or signs. And the signs said full employment. Right. And so I, the the version that we've been given of Martin Luther King Jr. is of, uh, you know, a sanitized kind of liberal ideal version of him. And we miss the parts of his uh, educate political education and his political understanding uh, that he was, you know, very sympathetic to Marxism and very uh, interested in Marxist concepts. Um, and so full employment is a concept that's, you know, embedded within communist organizing and has been typically found in places like the Soviet Union, where you've got a, you know, a jobs guarantee. Everyone who wants a job has a job. Um, and it was interesting to see that as part of their campaign. And you make a great point, right? It's when you unite the working class. You know, it's Fred Hampton didn't didn't actually take heat and get killed until he was uniting um, you know, his Rainbow Coalition, where he was uniting disaffected uh, Appalachian whites who had made it to Chicago. He was uniting uh, the Young Lords, uh, and he was uniting, you know, Black folks from his own organizing background. And so it was that kind of uh, cross-racial working-class unity that was most frightening. And so that example you gave of the sanitation workers in Memphis you know, that that's the poor people's campaign, right? That's the beginning of the end for him, uh, for Dr. King, because, you know, it's that same type of broad based support, right? They had seen him, you know, in coalition with so many other groups, um, well-organized groups. He was able to make such strength, you know, strong gains in throughout the South with Montgomery bus boycott was enormously successful, you know, and took a whole ton of solidarity, right? And a year and a half of bus boycott from a whole bunch of black domestic workers who relied on that, that bus ride to get to work and had to find other options for a year and a half to make that win. But that's the type of win that, that brings uh, more unity across you know, various racial groups in the South is when you see a winner like that, right? You see someone who can organize a successful workers movement, you know, that's going to bring more workers into the movement. And that's where you get that kind of momentum. And that's where you get that kind of fear from the ruling class. So I think it's important to mention, as I'm writing this down here, Trump rode the wave of disgruntled working class white people uh, into the White House. So these are people who felt left behind, abandoned by the Democratic Party, who seem to only now appeal to rich corporate elites. So mm-hmm. I think both parties. So, I mean, I think the rhetoric is a little bit different between the two parties. And of course, you know, Trump's policies punched those people right in the face when he got in the White House. But his rhetoric was, you know, had much more popular appeal. The Democrats, um, you know, also abandoned the working class. Uh, as well, but uh, you know their appeal. Um, you know, I think this identity politics, um, divide and conquer stuff, cultural war stuff. It seems like that's the only fight. You know, the Democrats are willing to fight, uh, and they don't seem to be you know fighting for higher wages. You know, increasing the minimum wage, which is desperately needed, affordable mm-hmm. college, loan forgiveness. Uh, I think we need mm-hmm. to drastically improve our um, safety nets, like expanding. 
Social Security and Medicare. Biden has been someone that uh, has been trying to cut that his whole career. So, you know, what you have is a a, a presidential candidate uh, who's very, very unpopular, historically unpopular, who's fought against, you know, uh, things working people want on the left for his whole entire career. Uh, so it shouldn't be, become, shouldn't be any sort of surprise to, um, you know, to, to the fact that you know people aren't coming out and, and, and voting for them, and and I don't think they should be surprised whatsoever um, if if Trump ends up winning the White House because uh, I, I think Bernie came out and said this, and I don't know what your thoughts on Bernie and I guess his last four years as you know he's been pretty much um, you know he's been saying some stuff you know certainly that appeals to me and and, and radical leftists, but he's been. For the most part, um, you know, pretty much the Democratic Party line, you know, but he's, I think he's a pretty high position of power within Washington and within the Democratic um, Party. So, you know, maybe he doesn't want to jeopardize that or maybe he's just getting soft in his old age or, you know, who knows. But, um, you know, what, what do you think about, uh, you know, the Biden presidency, Bernie as of late in the Trump 24, 2024 election, uh, you know, the 2024 election generally, do you think uh, – yeah, do you think um, Trump's going to win it? Do you think um, I think Bernie came out and said something like, you know, like you were saying, like we got to we got to fight Trump with progressive policies. We got to we got to do we got to do some far left radical measures if we ever want to have a chance to um, to beat Trump. But it doesn't seem like you know, and I, I'm critical of Biden too. I mean, he has clear cognitive decline. I don't think he's a mastermind. I don't think he's an architect of these political um, decisions. I think he's just showing up every once in a while to wave at cameras and say some couple things, a uh, written speech. And I think his handlers are hoping he just doesn't uh, embarrass himself too much. But uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think he has too much say in the goings on of what his administration is doing, what the goals are. Um, I think he's, you know, essentially being run by, you know, party elites, uh, you know, his handpicked cabinet. I'm sure he might've been involved somewhat, but, uh, yeah, I, I think he's at this point, mostly a figurehead that doesn't have all that much say. I don't even know if he knows what the policies are, you know, but, uh, every once in a while he comes up, comes uh, on and makes a public appearance, but, uh, it's, it's not someone that, uh, seems all that, uh, cognizant or sharp, you know, mentally, I don't, I don't seem like he, he doesn't seem like he's mentally there. It just seems like he's kind of, you know, every once in a while, <laughs> he might, uh, he might get a thing or two right. But most of the time I'm like, what's this guy talking about? Yeah. I mean, he should be enjoying his elder years and, and spending time with grandkids. He seems to be a pretty good family man. And so go do that. Right. Like <laughs> we yes, don't need, please. we don't need this. Right. And so and I think that's part of the problem is that he's seen as like losing it which I, I fully believe he is. I think it's, we're looking at like Ray, the way Reagan was in, at the end of his time yeah, in office. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I think it, it, the biggest part for me that is upsetting and that I kind of like, uh, you know, feel sad that I was able to kind of see it coming in this case is that, you know, you really, he didn't go to bat for, for workers in a way that Bernie has throughout his career, right? Like, Say what you will about the way that Bernie has kind of like laid down and and um, you know towed the line in order to I think keep peace and in an effort to gain that power that you say you know I think he is in on seats and in places of power that he never could have achieved without that action. You know, it's a chair of the he, Senate Budget Committee or something like that. Like it's a pretty high position. But, Usually, you got to buy that type of position. So yeah, maybe he doesn't want to jeopardize his position. And yeah, I saw him uh, with. Uh, I think as he was um, 
the moderator or something like that for a labor hearing. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, well, it's very... not just that. Like, that's his career. It is has been staked on labor and on being at the table. Like, right when when big employers like Walmart have gone up against you know labor groups, he's there. Right, he's actually, and and workers know that, and white workers know that in places that Trump can get you know he can get that support. But white workers have seen Bernie on the picket line or in, in negotiating rooms, standing up for labor. And that's it. You can't really, you can't overstate the importance of that um, in a, in a, a national election, especially, but especially if you want to try to drum up the type of support that Democrats like envision themselves having, right. You know, it's, you, you really have to show that you're going to bat. And, and I think we're in a new era right now where people are just, they're looking for the government to do something. And I, I think you can only do that with, with left policy where, you know, you are disempowering corporations or at least putting up really strong protections against them. And at the same time, empowering workers and especially workers unions to make the demands that their workers need, right. That their members membership needs. And if you, if you don't have that, I mean, and Biden has like, you know, aside from the, the rail workers strike that he pushed an aversion to, uh, you know, it got Congress involved right away to, to cut off that strike before they could gain any type of strike momentum. Um, it, he did show up on the UAW picket line. And, and I was just going to mention the, that too. Trump showed up in Michigan. He went to a uh, non-unionized plant, uh, you know, a corporate controlled plant and Biden did go to the UAW picket line. So that's a, that's, a, that's maybe a reason enough to, to prefer these two tor- terrible candidates, you know, to pr- prefer at least Biden a little bit more. It does seem like, you know, at least publicly he wants to appear like he's fighting for, you know, working people. Trump's not even going to make that. I mean, he'll, he might go to the state, but he's not going to go anywhere near a UAW, UAW picket line or anywhere near a unionization organization campaign, right? No, in that plant you mentioned in Michigan that he that he showed up and did a televised event at was staged where they it was a non-union plant and they gave workers shirts that said unions for Trump and they put them on like it's just so so absolutely asinine. Very deceptive, and, very deceptive. And the UAW is is historically militant and is now under leadership of Sean Fain that is awesome. you know, in, yeah, in, in, in touch with workers and oh, yeah. willing to to really push to make the gains that they needed to make. But they're, like you said, they're not going to put up with, with Trump, you know, and, and they know, they see through it, but not all labor does, right? And not all workers, you know, understand that that distinction. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's troubling. I mean, I'm just troubled by the fact that folks are okay with what comes out of, out of Trump's mouth, right? Like that's troubling enough to me. I did retweet this. This was a a leftist account, account, a socialist account, a big account. I forget which one it was, but it was a video of uh, Trump talking with uh, Bill O'Reilly. Did you see that? And he had mentioned that um, Bill O'Reilly said something about, you know, Putin being a killer. And Trump said, hold on a minute. We got killers right here. Like, we've done a lot of bad things. I mean, look what our government's done. There's not too many presidents that would say that kind of stuff. So every once in a while, Trump does get it right. And the the socialist account, the left account, it escapes me. But it's a big account, left-wing Twitter. They're they're not moderate by any means. Uh, They were retweeting this video and said something like, you know, Trump's the only president that's going to say something like this, you know, uh, on on Bill O'Reilly. And he does. You know, he he speaks his mind. He gets it right sometimes, not most of the time. 
time, but every once in a while. Uh, but not many presidents are going to come out and say, hey, we got killers right here in America. We're no different than Putin and some of these um, you know, right-wing authoritarian regimes. We've done, done a lot of bad things in our country's history. And O'Reilly said, you know, find a government that hasn't killed people by mistake. And Trump says, whoa, whoa wait a minute, it wasn't... It's not always by mistake, you know what I mean? You know, so it's yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah, he says the quiet part out loud, and and yeah. I was really afraid that he would pick up on this, and he has. He started talking about like we shouldn't be sending our money to Ukraine um, because I think that's a popular line with Americans. I think that you know people across the country see that and they're like, of course, and they don't f- understand the full extent of our military budget and how incredibly ridiculous and bloated and un- unnecessary yes, it's, it's a tiny it fraction. is. So John's going to talk about he, it. It's a tiny fraction knows, of the budget and, 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 and successfully, you know, weakening, weakening our, our biggest military, uh, you know, whatever um, threat. They're, they're certainly not a threat to me or anything, you know, my family or anything here, but you know, our, our, our biggest military competitor in, in Russia. So, you know, from an economic standpoint, it actually makes sense. But, um, you know, I, the, the what I'm saying is Ukraine is insanely corrupt, you know, so I, I, no, I don't support uh, World War Three either, which it could turn into that if it continues to escalate, which it can. I mean, Putin's no, my, news, thousands of them. My point is that he just says this shit, right? It just comes out of his mouth and he is totally talking shit. He will, he just doesn't actually do any of the things that he says he's going to do. We know this from his track record, right? So he, what I'm saying is he has this ability to take pot shots, especially from the outside. He does it so well. His nicknames for people, they're so childish, but they're so fucking good. They're, they like make, they make me chuckle. Like they, they are actually like kind of clever sometimes. And that's the kind of stuff that's like totally useless as an actual leader right when you're trying to govern that doesn't actually do you any good but in the, yeah. the american first past the post horse race you know election system it, it works and it's it's scary yeah when when elizabeth warren came out and she was like what 117th native american he calls her pocahontas i mean just so ridiculous mm-hmm. i mean so hilarious that uh it, it, it's funny like if anything he was at least entertaining in the white house although his policies were just uh, just dreadful for the working class. So, um, you know, what, what do you think about, let's go back to MLK. What do you think about people on the right, you know, the Republican Party? I mean, every MLK day, they're tweeting about MLK quotes and just gaslighting us. It's just so absurd. I mean, you know, people, people um, you know, tweeting out what Dr. Martin Luther King said and, you know, maybe whitewashing some of the things that he did. And uh, in reality, um, he would be completely against everything those people stand for if he was uh, alive today. Well, it, unfortunately, it's everyone in the American political sphere who tweets because they're also okay with the genocide happening in Gaza, right? So, like, MLK was very clear about the Palestinian issue, and it wasn't, you know, on the side of, of genocide yeah. against the Palestinians, right? So, like, even... And that's that's what's most frustrating to me. And it's it's that piece also that I've mentioned earlier about the sanitized version of his political beliefs and his political leanings and his belief in the failures of capitalism. Right. Like we're not we don't celebrate that aspect of him. Right. His ability to call out a system that was patently unjust, inherently unjust, built on desperation. And he called out all the parts of it. Right. Like he didn't he didn't mince words. And he made it very clear why it was a system that was designed for workers to fail in and why it wasn't going to be the way to to actually make the the gains that we need to make in order to actually have equity and and fairness, um, you know, 
it, and it, I think it's just, it's unfortunate for me as someone who has read him closely and kind of like developed that understanding of him to see that sanitized version put forward, even by people who are ostensibly or kind of labeled as left within American politics. Um, you know, that, that feels sad to me because of such a depth and breadth of his work and the complexity of his character for it to be boiled down um, into these simplistic understandings uh, that, that miss his, you know, broad-based knowledge and, and depth of, like, political research and, like, on-the-ground learning that he did about how that all worked. Uh, that I find that frustrating. It, just as much as, you know, you make a great point about people on the right, like, get his name out of your mouth. It should never come out of your mouth because you are actively working to undo uh, and increase the problems, you know, the, uh, undo the gains he, he and his cohorts made, made uh, and, and just make things worse, exacerbate inequality that he, that he fought so hard against. So speaking of um, you know, simplifying, what do you think about uh, Professor Richard Wolf, Marxist economist uh, of Yale, might be retired or I don't know if he's still at it, but he does a lot of uh, public speaking engagements. You ever check out any of his work? Yeah, I, I listened to uh, one of the. I listened to the Socialist Report. They put out like two shows a week, and one of those shows they put out, uh, he is interviewed on uh, about economic issues. I, I I find him enjoyable to listen to. I also find sometimes it he does simplify things a little too much. Um, but I also find him to have almost like a Bernie esque ability to like broadcast like yeah, things he's good. That, that are, yeah, and it, I think he's good. It, he's, I wouldn't say he's like a you know. Z- I'm not going to go to him for sophisticated economic maybe research, but I think he does a great job of exposing the capitalist system and it's, you know, inequity uh, talking about, um, you know, he's like, this is like a two minute uh, video I saw on Reddit uh, and he does these really good simplifications of a very, very complicated system for someone like me that, you know, take economics courses in college, but I don't have a, a formal background in it. But he's like, okay, there's four times a year stockholders get a check in the middle. That's your dividends. And for the rich and powerful in this country, it could be millions and millions of shares. And, uh, you know, they, they get these checks in the mail four times a year for doing absolutely nothing. They don't know what's going on in the company. They don't know what the company sells. They don't know, you know, wh- where even these uh, products are produced. Uh, but they, they get this check in the mail for doing absolutely nothing. And how do they get these checks because um, you know, they do absolutely nothing. What you have to do is take something away that people are producing it. So that's how you know the, the system of dividends works. You're giving someone that has absolutely nothing to do with the company, that has no involvement, that has nothing to do with production, and um, you know, it's mailing them a check saying, "Here you go." So instead of those uh, profits um, being equally distributed to um, you know the workforce, they're just getting given out to rich people that have nothing to do with it, you know, and if you have, again, millions and millions of shares, you don't have to work. So like we don't live in some meritorious, uh, you know, society where the harder you work, the more money you have. Most of uh, billionaires and, you know, the elites, the 1% and the fraction of the 1%, they're given their wealth, you know, they're born with it. They're either given it or, you know, they have opportunities, connections, that sort of thing. The economy is rigged. So I think Professor Wolf, you know, again, a very complicated economic system, but every once in a while, yeah, like some of his videos trying to just really simplify something that's like, hey, that, that is bullshit, you know? Why, why do these 
Why do these stockholders get these giant dividend payments every year? And why aren't they giving to the workers? They're the ones making the products, not these you know stockholders that you know maybe they got a thousand shares from their grandma or grandpa, you know. And how do they get their money? You know, maybe they were Nazis. You never know. I mean, I mean, honestly, some of this old money stuff it might date back to slavery, Nazism, all that kind of stuff. When you have these networks of money and you know the Pandora Papers and the uh, Panama Papers, you know networks where the rich powerful hide their money we don't know how they got it you know and it's it's out of circulation it's hoarded um it's offshore it's in tax havens so you know all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff but uh yeah so it's, it's a really it's a really twisted system and i again go back to the you know the formation of the central banks the banks you know the american revolution um Really, all we did was replace monarchs, you know, kings and queens with corporate executives. I mean, it's still we still find ourselves within this system, this hierarchy, you know, where the rich and powerful, the elites, you know, they've just been replaced. You know, they and now they wear suits instead of uh, knights of armor and whatnot. You know. Yeah, I mean, you you went through a lot of things there, and like, <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> you know, as you do. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of this like harkens back to Marxism for me, uh, especially in the idea of kind of economic rent, what he called economic rent. And that is the the concept of folks that you mentioned who are collecting a dividend just because of what they were born into, right? Winning the birth lottery. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, another quote I like is waking up on third base and they think it's because they hit a triple, right? It's, yeah. it's these Who said that? Who's that one? I've heard that before. I, you know what? I got to I gotta Google it again. I use it all the time and I okay. always forget, I always forget to it correctly attribute it but it's a good one um you know versus labor value right the idea that people are in in fact producing what is being produced and that's the workers who are doing that right and that's the idea of you know, one that you know we've talked about before but workers, value creation right right creation of value and those those you know stockholders are not creating any value and and so much of our economy is is people who don't create value and and reap the you know the vast majority of the rewards of the system um hey let's get this real quick we got less than five minutes i did want to mention the epstein saga a lot of people on the left and the right are obsessed with it um you know i guess this network of um you know elites supposedly you know uh, network where epstein was uh you know involved with these people uh wealth and power and status and all that sort of thing. I do not think there is some conspiracy theory where pedophiles are in control of world governments or anything like that. Um, I just think that uh, Epstein uh, had a lot of friends in high places. And like you said on our pre-call, he uh, kind of um, leveraged his blackmail tool uh, for all it's worth. Uh, what say you about the Epstein uh, saga and all that stuff coming out? I just think it's, uh, you know, it's smut. It's, it's something to talk about. It's gossip, but uh, I don't think that there's too much fire to the smoke. I think this guy was a creep and had a lot of friends in high places, but uh, I don't see some conspiracy theory where, you know, pedophiles are in control of society or world governments and all that sort of stuff. No, definitely not that, but it definitely shows that we have a system. And you I saw you tweet this out, right? It's, it shows that there's a different system for the rich than there is for the poor, for the poor as we mentioned, yeah. than, than the rest of us, not necessarily even the poor. They play um, by different another, rules than we do. Another thing is like the whole like pearl clutching about some liberals like Bill Clinton being on that list. And it's like, it does, it's not the political party folks, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, the class status It's the, it's the entry into the ruling class and how that affects, um, you know, the way that you interact with our legal system, which is 
totally different, as we mentioned. But yeah, I yeah, I think you you summed that one up well. I I do think it's also political gossip, uh, and kind of gets clicks for that reason as well. We got uh, a minute or two. I'll give you uh, I'll give you the mic for the next minute or so. Anything you want to talk about? Anything you want to discuss? What's the state of the uh, American education system? How's your weather up there? It was 75 degrees down here in South Texas. How are you doing up there? It's cold. Uh, we've gotten a couple of snowstorms, which is nice to see with how our winters have been of late. Uh, but it's cold and, um, you know, our economic system. I'm still working on that that fight within our union for a better contract. It's our contract year. Uh, but we'll get to that on another pod because I'd, I'd like to kind of see how a few things play out and then report back to you on that. Um, our My next project is not up and running yet, but if you want to listen to any of my work, listen to Trickle Down Socialism, the podcast, you'll find it on any podcast app. Um, I ran that with an old colleague of mine from Boston and my producer, C-Money Burns, who is a, an ace audio producer if you're looking for someone to edit your content. He'll be back on the podcast. Uh, I think next month I got him on, and you and I will be following up once a month. I also have anthropologist Paulette Steves coming on the show. We're going to talk about uh, the Clovis theory and the indigenous archaeology of the Americas and why she called it career suicide. Uh, I know you're a history buff, as I am as well. So uh, perhaps after I um, talk with her, you can listen to the pod and we can talk about the uh, the Clovis theory and why it's now debunked and uh, I guess the risk history of um, the Americas. And, you know, it seems to be a lot deeper than maybe 10,000 years. So we're still, I guess, making new discoveries all the time about the, the uh, I guess, the, the founding of the Americas, the discovery of the Americas. We've been here a lot longer than many people think. Anyways, over and out, my friend. Thanks for Thanks for stopping by. Peace. Peace, man. Thank you. special guest pat tds for a great discussion tonight as always shout out to drowning dog and malatesta for the show music again i am your host mc squared no gods no masters i'm out
Look here, now look here. Ah! Who are you when there's no one looking? Riddles and fiction, forced perspective and contradiction, pseudoscience and a whole lot of ass. Life comes fast, tricks for the trade. Terrorize the people, throw them in a cage. Straw men, hey, necessary to keep the face, keep the pace. Keep us with our hands up, democracy. The rich are leading the propaganda, they kicking that sand up. Can't see, got us fucked up, but we gotta get.